the prime obligation of every human being is to speak out against injustice. We are our brother's keeper. You're listening to The Keeper, brought to you by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. I'm Katrina Lantos-Sweat. Today on The Keeper, we welcome back the chair of the Lantos Foundation and my mother, Annette Lantos. This beautiful, intelligent, and charming woman worked for more than two decades side-by-side with my father, the late Congressman Tom Lantos, as the unpaid executive director of the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. She was responsible for many of the most important human rights initiatives undertaken by Tom Lantos and was an acknowledged human rights leader in her own right. Annette Lantos's evolution from wife, mother, and educator to activist began in the late 1970s when she first learned that the hero who had saved her during the Holocaust might still be alive and languishing in a Soviet prison. We had the opportunity recently to talk to Annette Lantos about that hero, Raoul Wallenberg, the incredible impact he had on her life, and the example he is to all of us. In very different ways, both you and our beloved husband and father were rescued by Raoul Wallenberg. Dad was rescued by him in a more direct fashion as he found refuge in one of the Wallenberg safe houses. And in your case, it was a little more indirect because you received a Portuguese passport after Wallenberg really led the way with his Schutzpasses. Talk to us a little bit about what Wallenberg meant to the persecuted Jews of Budapest when he came there in the summer of 1944. Yes, Wallenberg's presence in Budapest gave tremendous hope there were over a hundred thousand Jewish people who were the last ones of a population of one million. They are constantly made efforts with the Gestapo not to allow the Jews of the city to be deported. The presence of Wallenberg meant hope and meant basically life for the hundred thousand Jewish people of Budapest. You talk about other ambassadors, diplomats stepping up to provide protective papers and maybe in some cases a temporary refuge. But that whole effort by the diplomatic corps, would it be correct in your view to say it was really led by Wallenberg, that totally. he was the spark, he was totally. the inspiration? The others would not have dared to undertake it on their own. The only reason they dared to undertake it because he, as a Swedish diplomat, showed the way and when the others received rebuffs from their country government, they referred to Wallenberg and to Sweden mm. as their excuse, you know. And the whole effort that ultimately resulted in 100,000 Jews being saved in Budapest was basically led by Wallenberg. And, you know, that 100,000 figure is, of course, such a stunning, huge number. And I recall you telling me that as the Germans were facing the Russians closing in on the city, they intended to have one last effort to blow up the entire ghetto and kill as many of those who were still alive as possible. And that Wallenberg personally went to the German commander and said, I will see to it that you hang for war crimes. 
if you do this last exactly. evil deed. Exactly, that's the exact true story. The in German fact. diplomat's first reaction to his appearance was that if I shoot you here and now, nobody will know the difference. I can claim you died on the street during the siege. Everybody was dying, you know, there was a siege going on. And that was his first reaction. And Wallenberg gave him a very good answer. It had something to do is how he's going to testify in behalf of him after the war. Because, you know, the Germans knew that they are going to be accountable for their deeds. Well, and in a brilliant and tough way, he used both threats and inducements. He said, I'll see to it that you hang for war crimes if you do this, but But if you act to save these 100,000 Jews, I will speak on your behalf. That's exactly. I sometimes am brought up short when I realize how young he was yes. when he did this. You know, he had 30, such courage. 33 or something. Yeah, a yeah. young, young man yeah. who had previously been an architect. Exactly. And, you know, involved in the family's banking business, and yet a master diplomat, yeah. a master bluffer. Well, yeah, the situation brought out aspects of himself of which he wasn't even aware he had. Mm. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, were the Jews of Budapest aware of Wallenberg widely at the time that this was going on? Was his name known by everybody or only by a select few? I don't know whether it was everybody, but they were very aware of his name. And the idea was that they said, if we can just get to Wallenberg, we'll be saved. It didn't mean necessarily directly to Wallenberg, but to Wallenberg's entourage. He had by then a big entourage, most of them, top-level Jewish people with safe papers working for him, further his rescue work, very top, top people. Wallenberg was like a, a light shining in the darkness. I love what you told me once that the Jews of Budapest called him their Moses from yes, the north. Yes, right. There's, of course, an old saying that no good deed yeah. goes unpunished, and that was tragically true in the case of Raoul Wallenberg. Can you very briefly explain to us what we think happened? What is believed is that Wallenberg went to the Russian headquarters and asked to speak to the top Russian leader there and introduced himself and told him the kind of rescue mission that he was on and working. And he requested that some food and drinking water be made available for these 100,000 people who were living now on the edge, whom the Germans did not kill. And the Russian got so outraged at the request that he should provide for these people that he accused Wallenberg of being uh, set up. The Wallenberg family was in Sweden or in Europe, like the Rockefeller families in this country, you know. That name equaled but a Rockefeller name would be here, and that didn't exactly appeal to the Russians. Right. One of the other things I've heard is that Wallenberg had very idealistic plans for the rebuilding of yes. Budapest and for the establishment yes. of a vibrant democratic country exactly. in Hungary. And of course, the Soviets viewed that as a terrible threat. Would you say that his personal Charisma and this incredible reputation he had in some ways as the savior of Budapest or of the Jews of Budapest 
made them fear his influence. I think that's absolutely right. He was the son of one of the most prominent Scandinavian plutocrats, big capitalist. He represented everything that the Russians hated. And here, you know, he was making demands on them to support his causes. And they just didn't like that at all. Yeah. I seem to recall that when Wallenberg went to see the Russian commander, he said to one of his aides, I don't know if I'm going as a guest yes. or as a prisoner. Yeah, it turned out to be that they were deporting him to Siberia. Nobody heard from him since. That was the last we heard of Wallenberg. He disappeared. It's just so tragic because if enough pressure had been brought yeah, at, that point, at that time... Who knows what yes. might have happened. Of course, there were family members who did try. His half-sister. She pursued it for many years. First, she was supporting her mother. The mother led, you know, the crusade. But then the mother died and Nina took up the fight. And until the very end, you know, she just didn't accept. She was just struggling to confront the Russians with the truth of what they did because yeah. the Russians kept denying the truth. You were, of course, a very young girl, and miraculously, you survived. Went on to marry your childhood sweetheart, Tom Lantos, who went on to become the only Holocaust survivor ever elected to Congress. But you became busy with the life of a young mother, raising a family in America, making your way in this new country. But at a certain point, you read an article saying that Simon Wiesenthal, the legendary Nazi hunter believed he had located the great hero of the Holocaust, Raoul Wallenberg, in a Soviet prison. Irkutsk. In the Irkutsk prison. What did that do to your life? It turned my life upside down. From then on, that became our number one priority. It's always on the top of the list of what we wanted to do. And then, of course, Tom was elected to Congress. His very first congressional effort, the very first day he took his seat, was to put in a resolution making Raoul Wallenberg an honorary American citizen, only the second in the history of the United States. The first one was Churchill. I'm going to take you back a little bit before Dad was elected to Congress because, as you said a moment ago, it really did turn your world upside down. You felt, as you've shared with us, an awakening sense of responsibility that this man put everything on the line and sacrificed so much to save people who were not his his own people, not his family, not his faith. You founded one of the first free Wallenberg committees. And what I want our listeners to know is that at the time that you undertook this, nobody knew the name of Raoul Wallenberg. The greatest hero of the Holocaust had almost been forgotten, almost forgotten in the dustbin of history. His half-sister was fighting the fight, and a few people here and there. But I remain very inspired by the fact that you became so on fire with this desire to try to repay this debt of gratitude. And you really, in my opinion, were the one that sparked what became a global movement first to try and determine whether Raoul might be alive, and of course free him. Secondly, if not alive, to get the truth from the Soviets and from the Russians about what truly happened. And third, and in some ways this perhaps became the most important part of the story, redeem his incredible story and make sure that all the world knew who this man had been. 
Business. Now let's fast forward to that first piece of legislation that Dad put in. It had big impact in the press and everywhere. And so if the Russians thought that they could hide away the Wallenberg case and pretend that Wallenberg died in 1946 or 47, like they had all those years, they realized they couldn't do that anymore because there were just too many people now involved. In terms of getting the bill passed, how much personal outreach and lobbying did you and Dad have to do? You know, you were brand new members of Congress. Yes. We got a lot of support, a lot of support, a lot of interest. The New York Times read a cover story, and that sort of really put him in the center of everything. And it was President Reagan at that time. Oh, yeah, and he and was, was very He was supportive, wasn't he? Very supportive. So that yes. made a huge difference yes. as well. President Reagan was very supportive because, you know, he didn't like their commies. <laughs> no, he no. didn't like the commies, that's no. for sure. And I'm sure he saw this. That's a very sophisticated yeah. point because yeah. I'm sure he saw this in part as a chance to stick it to the Russians. Yeah, absolutely, um, <laughs> of course, he was right about that. <laughs> We're going to backtrack for a minute. Before Dad was elected to Congress, and during the time when Jimmy Carter was president, he announced that he was going to have a national telephone town hall. Well, it was advertised a lot on radio and TV to send in postcards if you had a question. And I remember you sent in maybe 10 10 or 15 postcards in which you said that you wanted to speak to President Carter about the case of this Swedish yes, humanitarian yes. who had been kidnapped by the Russians and was languishing possibly in Soviet prison now decades right. after the end of the Holocaust. Did you send that postcard off thinking, well, that oh, was a, course, you know. Of course, you know, just so many other things that I have done. I've dropped in 10 or 12 postcards, you know. Because I was writing all the time letters, seeking support. So you send off the postcards yeah. and describe how shocked you were when several weeks later you get a call from the White House. Yes, after I almost forgot about this. I was having breakfast at home with my husband, Tom, and the phone rings. And so I run and pick it up and can talk to Mrs. Lantos. I said, speaking, Mrs. Lantos, your card has just been called. (laughs) And in a few minutes, you will have a chance to speak to President Carter and ask him the questions that you have in mind. Talk about divine intervention. Before Tom was a member of Congress. Incredible. I couldn't believe it. I definitely felt that. It was a divine intervention. It gave me hope that maybe we are going to succeed with our effort. So you were live on national radio. So it was broadcast on thousands of stations across the country. And you had only a few minutes to prepare your question. Because, of course, when you're going to be talking to not only the President of the United States, but tens of millions of your fellow citizens, you want your question just so. It was very impressive because you sort of thought that he would have no idea about the case. And in fact, that proved not to be the case. He said, yes, I know about the case. I have read a lot of communication. And he said something to the effect that it was my intention to bring it up in Vienna because he was going to have a meeting, I think, in a week. He was maybe going to have a meeting with Brezhnev. We talked a few minutes ago about the three goals that you and Dad had. The first goal, which would have been the greatest joy, would be somehow to have won his release, which was not to be. 
The second goal was to find out the true facts. And although since the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russians claim to have released all of the files and all of the information, both the Wallenberg family and other researchers continue to believe that they have not been 100% candid. There is still a lot of conflicting information, and there remains the fact that for many years into the mid-1970s, there were persistent reports that leaked out from the gulag, from the prisons, from behind the Iron Curtain, of other former prisoners who said, I heard of a Swede who said his only crime was saving Jews, or I was in a jail cell next to him, and he said, tell the world I'm still alive. Different amazing and, of course, heartbreaking reports. But as time went on, we know he did eventually pass away. And there does remain... A cloud, we might say, over whether or not the Russians have truly given us all of the facts and all of the information. But that third goal, to save his name, save the story of his remarkable heroism and his incredible deeds from being forgotten, that is really where your efforts have been most successful and really extraordinary. Talk to us about the effort to get the street on which the Holocaust Museum is located, named the Raoul Wallenberg Place, the stamp named after Wallenberg, the bust of Wallenberg placed in the capital. It became much easier after my husband was elected to Congress. For a congressman, you know, we could initiate And that was the very first thing, before he took his seat, before we had an office, we were sitting out on a bench. He was drafting resolution in making Raoul Wallenberg an honorary citizen of the United States. And of course, the very fact that he did it like this got a tremendous coverage in the newspaper, because it was sort of unprecedented, (laughs) because we had no idea where our office was. You didn't even have an office yet, but that's how... How deeply you both felt about this. Following that initial extraordinary achievement, you and Dad were successful in getting the street on which the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum is located, named Raoul Wallenberg Place. You had the post office issue a commemorative stamp. And something that I think was particularly meaningful to you, you succeeded in getting a bust of Raoul Wallenberg placed in the U.S. Capitol. That bust now sits in one of the most prominent places in the entire United States Capitol, in the magnificent Emancipation Hall of the Capitol Visitor Center, where they have a replica of the Liberty statue that sits atop the Capitol. And on either side, she is flanked by two busts. One is of the great African-American woman abolitionist Sojourner Truth, And on the other side, it is Raoul Wallenberg, only the second person honored with honorary American citizenship. One of the reasons that Wallenberg's bust has become so meaningful to the millions of visitors who go there is the beautiful plaque that you wrote that accompanies the bust. So wherever people come from, they understand who this man was. And we actually printed out a picture of the plaque. Would you be willing to read for us the words that you wrote about Wallenberg? Yes, I'd be very glad to do that. Raoul Wallenberg's mission of mercy in behalf of the United States 
during World War II was unprecedented in the history of mankind. He was responsible for saving tens of thousands of lives during the Holocaust. A shining light in a dark and depraved world, he proved that one person with the courage to care can make a big difference. You really summed up not only what he did, but the meaning of what he did. It must give you a lot of satisfaction to think that forever, Raoul Wallenberg will be there in that place of honor, and you made it happen. That is to me a great satisfaction. You know, his life was not lived in vain. The world hasn't forgotten him, which is what the Russians hoped to accomplish, that nobody will remember him. Instead, forever and ever he will be remembered because he's in such a prominent place in the U.S. Capitol. Everybody can go and read this plaque and look at the Wallenberg sculpture and remember there was once upon a time a great man who must have done great deeds of valor. The fact that you tell what he did means that it's deeply meaningful. They know why he's there. What are the lessons for humanity and for each of us individually that we can draw from studying Raoul's life? How has this great hero of humanity influenced your life and how should he be an influence in the lives well, of all I of us? I think the important lesson is that unless we assume responsibility for being our brother's keeper, this world eventually will collapse. It is the essence of our life here in this world is to learn that, that we are each other's keeper, we need each other, we have to support each other, and our life becomes meaningful as we do so. It is easy for us to think of heroes as merely distant figures on pedestals that we read about in history books. It is very different when one of those heroes saved both of your parents' lives, and they in turn made it their business to try and save his life, or at least the memory of his deeds for future generations. I will be forever grateful to Raoul Wallenberg, because without his courage and humanity, it is unlikely my parents would have survived the horrors of the Holocaust, and my own story would never have come to be. I am equally grateful to my remarkable mother, whose example of loyalty and gratitude to the man who saved her have been a guidepost to me in my life's journey. My mother had to reach far beyond her own comfort zone to take on the cause first of Wallenberg and eventually of countless other people who needed someone to stand up on their behalf. My mother did that with passion and love, and she will always be my trailblazer and my hero. I'm Katrina Lanto-Sweat. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Keeper. This episode of The Keeper was produced and recorded by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. To support our work and for more information on today's guest and topic, visit us at www.lantosfoundation.org.